Okay, so let's begin with nanotechnology. And uh, I drive here, I think, right? Okay. So this is an overview of some of the different areas that we're working on in our group. And uh, uh, we work on, on composite materials, and we've worked on, on uh, composites for the space shuttle that have uh, gone through space approval. Uh, this is an astronaut working on one of the surface materials in space, but not really because that's not really a microwave gun. That's just a water gun that I photoshopped in. They wouldn't show me the real microwave gun because it's proprietary. So we actually developed the composite to work with a microwave gun, and they won't show me the microwave gun because it's proprietary. Work on carbon fibers, uh, collaborate some with Dr. Satish Kumar, who's here. Um, we, we work on carbon nanotubes. This is a roach leg that we converted into graphene, a uh, single sheet of, of carbon by heating it up to 1,000 degrees on a copper foil because roaches are made out of carbon just like we are, and you just restructure it differently, and you can make, make uh, graphene out of it. Um, we work on, on uh, radome coatings that didn't show up. Uh, we work on uh, a lot of things for the oil and gas industry to make things more efficient. Uh, we've made, just this past year, we made transparent invisible mem memory so you could have embedded within glass and flexible pl plastic, not just a conductive touchscreen display, but also the memories now can now be embedded in that. So we work on the, in that area. We do a fair amount on the medicinal side. Tomorrow I'll be talking about uh, uh, carbon for traumatic brain injury and stroke, uh, some of the hottest drugs, hottest drug that's ever been seen for this area. And uh, we work on capturing radioactive elements uh, from the environment to clean up legacy sites. And, and uh, we work on also, uh, I'll be talking about this tomorrow, where we can take a single sheet of graphene and grow nanotubes seamlessly out of the graphene. Uh, but with that, that's the overview of what we do. And here's what I'm going to talk a little bit about tonight, and these are nanocars. Here's a picture of one of our nanocars. This is from the Zeitz magazine in Germany. We sent them a picture of one of our nanocars. And you see the four wheels of the nanocar here, and it's 9.4 times 10 to the minus 24 kilograms. That's a, uh, I, I don't have to feel, tell people at tech how small that is. That's a really small number. But in case there's anybody here who doesn't go to Georgia Tech and has never had the pleasure of, of studying at Georgia Tech, uh, that's like 24-0 point, and then, you know, 24-0 and a 9-4 or something like that. It's a very small number. This is 280,000 kilograms. So after I show you about nanocars, I'll discuss why we might want to make these when we can already have these. And a human being stands about that high relative to this vehicle that's used in coal mining. Uh, so we make nanocars, but we make lots of these. To give you an idea of how many we make of these, uh, in a single re reaction flask, we make 10 of the 23rd at a time, which you know is a big number. Let me put this in perspective. One swallow of water is 18 milliliters. 18 milliliters of water is one mole of water. One mole of water is 6 times 10 to the 23rd molecules. If instead of having one swallow of water, we, we put this, say, with sheets of paper, if one had sheets of paper and, say, you had a stack of paper that's 500 sheets high, you stick it in your inkjet printer, and that's two and a half inches high. Instead of having 500 sheets of paper, you had six times 10 to the 23rd sheets of paper or a mole of paper. That stack of paper reaches from the earth to the sun 400 million times. So a mole is a big number. We make this a mole at a time. So we have many of them and we'll capitalize on the many. 
This is how we make nanocars. This was our fourth generation nanocar. And we start with orthobromo aniline. We, we ionate, put a TMS acetylene on, and we build up the structure in this way. And then we go ahead and build up the axles, and then we put on the fullerene wheels. And so what you'll notice about this nanocar, it's the same top and bottom. This was designed in, so it doesn't matter how it lands on the surface. The front and the back, forward and reverse is the same. So it doesn't matter which direction it would start going. We call this the Z nanocar because when I, when I was in high school, I wanted, and only a few of you are going to remember this, I wanted a, a Datsun 240Z. <laughs> and, and I never was able to get one. <clears throat> but when you design your own car, you can name it whatever you like. So we <laughs> named this the Z car, and it kind of looks a little bit like a Z. But this was our fourth generation car, so it has fully rotatable axles. And also the, 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 the axles can rotate 360 degrees relative to the chassis due to these, these single bonds here. And this is important. My sons, when they <clears throat> were growing up, they had these cars where the axle could spin 360 degrees relative to the chassis. You know, these are little electric cars. That helps them to climb up steps. And we needed the same thing here, so we built that feature into these as well. So this is what they look like uh, on an atomically smooth surface. And, and again, I, I've lost the resolution in the, in, the, uh, in the PC to the Mac conversion here. Uh, but, but anyway, so here's, they, they actually look much better. They, this, this surface should be covered just like this. And um, uh, they're facing in this direction. They're going to turn and move across here. They're three nanometers by two nanometers. And this is, <coughs> this is important. We built them as, as rectangles. And we built them as rectangles because we can tell then the directionality. Which direction are they moving? Because if we didn't build them as a rectangle, if they were a square, we wouldn't know which direction they're going. So this is actually going to turn and move across this surface. Okay, so they're starting to move here. Here it is. And really, the resolution on a PC would have been a whole lot better. But uh, there it is. And there's the first nano collision ever recorded right there. <laughs> And, and so this is on atomically smooth gold. Now, many people had said that when we started doing this, this would be like a car on ice. It would have no directionality. It's just going to slide. That turns out not to be the case. We were very fortunate it didn't turn out to be the case because subsequently we made other nanocars where that occurred, and then we understood what we had to do to have the equivalent of friction at the nano level. And the, the, uh, a fullerene gives about a 2 EV bond strength. It's about 45 kilocalories per mole per fullerene to the gold surface. And because of that, these roll rather than slide across the surface. And we furthermore know that because when we built the trimer of this nanocar, <clears throat> when we built this trimer, it only rotates, it only pivots on axis. So if these were like a car sliding on ice, these just slide just as well. But they don't. Only the, the four-wheeled ones translate. These pivot on axis. And uh, uh, so it's, 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 um, it's a feature that we built in. So we know that these are translating. We can watch them translating. Once they get going, they continue in that direction. Uh, here's where you see a feature of the suspension, where it goes up one atomic step on the gold. These are one atomic step of high islands and comes back down the other side. And that's, that's a feature of that, um, uh, uh, of the, the, 
axles relative to the chassis. You know, many people said you don't have a nano car until you have a motor. So we had to build in a motor, uh, and so we built in these motors, and the idea is that these motors would act as, as a rotator, which would push these along like a paddle wheel. And the reason that these rotate in only one direction when you shine light on them is because they have a stereogenic center right here. So there's two element, elements of, of isomerism here. There's the atrope isomerism, the twisted double bond, and then there's a chiral or stereogenic center right there. So when this is, is photolyzed, it goes to an orthogonal state. And once it's in this orthogonal state, it can relax either way back down. But because of the nearby stereogenic center, those two orthogonal states can go in, in, in diastereotopic over diastereotopic transition states. That means different energy transition states. So it keeps going over the lower energy side, and it rotates in one direction. And so we built that feature into the nanocar. So this is how we did it. We start with these small molecules and build it on up, and, and we make first the rotor, we make the stator, and then we couple them together to make the motor. Then we put these end groups on to stick them onto these axles. And then we assemble the nanocar. Now this nanocar has a 3 megahertz rotation, so you shine light on it, it spins 3 million rotations per second. So this is something that you can't get out of a macroscopic motor, but there are these sort of features that can be built in. So we have these cars, we have motors, we've built about 25 different models of vehicles. We've built nano backhoes that can grab an element. We've built nano trucks that have a loading bay of a porphyrin loading bay to be able to carry things. But then the question comes, why nano cars? Why do we want to do them? At a place like Georgia Tech, what are they good for? Well, what is this good for? What is Mona Lisa good for? What does Mona Lisa do? Right? What does it do? It's aesthetically pleasing. It makes us happy when we look at it. We wonder, is she looking at me or isn't she? What was, what was Leonardo da Vinci thinking when he spent his life working on this? In academia, we don't have to have an application. We can do something just because it's intellectually interesting, and we should never forget that. This is what the academy is for. This is what funding should be for, that we can do things that are just intellectually pleasing. And this is intellectually pleasing. Nonetheless, we certainly have applications. So, for example, you look at a tree. This tree was made from the bottom up. So that we as people, if we want to make a podium, what do we do? We go out, we find a tree, we cut it down, we build a podium. That's top-down fabrication. That's generally how we build. Everything in nature is built from the bottom up if it has complex assembly. And in order to be a complex design, in order to be a thinking person, in order to, order to be an insect, in order to be able to, to have logic and intelligence and thought and function, one has to have disordered assembly. A rock, A, B, A, B, a stone, a, a mineral, A, B, lined up, or, or, or A, 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 all lined up. This is simple structure. You can get that by thermodynamics. You can get assembly like that. A, B, A, B. You can get that sort of assembly. But you have to have disordered, non-regular assembly in order to have complex function. This is what we are. We have all sorts of different pieces that work together. And how does nature do this if you can't just do it spontaneously by thermodynamics, by having molecules assemble into higher order structures like this? You do it with machines. And in nature, it's done with nanomachines, which are called enzymes, where it takes certain molecules and puts them into place so that the, the bagel that you ate this morning becomes part of your ear this evening. How does that happen? 
the molecules are broken down and they're assembled in other places that they need to be assembled into. The breaking down is by enzymes and the enzymes reconstruct. That is nature's nanomachines. If we want to be able to build sophisticated structures ex vivo, outside of the body, I don't think that these are going to be good for in the body because these are really small, two nanometers by three nanometers. This is plankton to a white blood cell. This is very small. But we're going to have to be able to assemble. If we're going to use it in vivo, we're going to use things that look like enzymes. They work quite well. But ex vivo, where enzymes don't work very well, then we have to be able to have structures that can build things. So can we begin to be able to pick things up and do assembly? Can we be able to pick things up and have higher order assembly constructed before our very eyes? This happens biologically. Enzymes do this. We are ubiquitous going around and, and, and there's this construction. You look at the trees out there. They've been made the same way. All of this. Well, can we build buildings like this so that in 100 years or 200 years we build skyscrapers this way? Could it be? Or is this just all science fiction? Don't dismiss it. Because everything in nature that has complex function is built this way with nature's little nano machines. Can we program nanocars to assemble so that instead of building buildings like this, as we've been building for the last 5,000 years where we bring in bricks and sticks and mortar, can we just bring in raw materials and have cars just assemble it? This is what enzymes do. This is how that tree formed, not from some larger tree being cut down, but from the bottom up. And the sophistication in a tree or a blade of grass is more than the, the, the technological sophistication in this building. Some strains of grass grow two feet tall in a single day. So actually you can do bottom-up assembly quite quick, quickly. You look at the growth rate of a carbon nanotube. Very fast growth, but that's regular assembly. So look at DNA, the growth rate of DNA. Extremely rapid assembly. These things can occur very rapidly. This is what we want to do. This is what we envision with nanocars. If we can learn to understand motion, if we can learn to control that motion, which we've done with electric fields, electric field gradients, if we can learn then to program them with electric fields to pick something up and drop it off, well, what will we make initially? Well, we'll just pick up 50 atoms and drop it off in a pile, and that will be a quantum dot memory. One bit. But that's a construction. We start small and then start building up smaller structures from there. So that it, could it be in 100 years or 200 years that we would use nanocars to build in that very way, just as enzymes do, because there is nothing magical about biology. It is sophisticated, it is complex, but we can understand it. And can we start to mimic it without using the tools of biology, using other other tricks that we have, and design other structures to build buildings, things that we like to live in. So that's nanocars. So there is the summary of different features that we've built. We've built motors and sensors and actuators. We've built in actually suspension, directionality, all different kinds of wheels, different fuel sources. We have chemically powered motor cars. We have thermally powered. We have light powered. We have uh, different cargo transporters. So all of these features have been built in. But what I'd like to do now is to tell you, first of all, how I became interested in chemistry. I didn't grow up becoming interested in chemistry. What happened to me? What was the transition that I went through to, to be in the position that I am today? How did I become interested in chemistry? And I wanted to be a New York State trooper. That's what I wanted to be. When I was in high school, I just, just had this vision. I wanted to be a New York State trooper. 
But it turned out that I couldn't get into the academy. And I couldn't get into the academy because there's, I'm colorblind. And I don't know what the rules are today. I suspect you could be a paraplegic and become a state trooper these days. But at the time, you couldn't be colorblind and become a state trooper. And so I thought I'd go into criminal science, work in a crime lab, at least somehow be related to, to, to that sort of uh, field. But my father gave me some advice. He said, why don't you, instead of going into criminal science, why don't you just get an undergraduate degree in chemistry, and then you can specialize after that. And I don't know what came over me, being 17 or 18 years old, but I listened to my father. <laughs> and and uh, uh, it actually turned out to be really good advice, because then I found organic synthesis. As a sophomore organic chemistry student, I started falling in love with synthetic chemistry. I would sit on Friday evenings when everybody else was out doing other things, and I would just solve problems in the book that had never been assigned. And then I started going beyond that and taking graduate textbooks and trying to solve the synthetic problems in there. Just, I loved doing organic synthesis, and I thought, this is wonderful. It's just uh, uh, wonderful to do this. And so I, I went to graduate school, and, and, and I started... Uh, pursuing a, a field in chemistry. So this is how I became a chemist. But uh, now I want to share with you how I became, how I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to say I'm not a theologian and I'm not a philosopher. And most Veritas forums bring in philosophers and theologians, and if they're not philosophers and theologians, they're very well read in those areas. I've read nothing in those areas. I don't know anything about theology and I don't know anything about philosophy. So if you come here and you're going to have questions about some, what some great philosopher has said, I'm just going to have to trust you that they said that because I can't verify that. I don't know. And don't, if you throw at me terms that are philosophical terms, I'm just going to look starry-eyed. I just don't know that area. Um, uh, so, so I'm just a simple chemist. That's what I am. <laughs> this was the first verse that I ever read from the Bible that I ever thought about. I was, 19, I was 18 years old. I had just gone to college. I had just turned 18. I was a freshman in college. <clears throat> and it was in August of my freshman year. I was in the laundry room doing my first load of laundry there in college. And there was another young man in there. And we got to talking and... He was, uh, he was a year ahead of me. I was a freshman. He was a sophomore. He was on the Syracuse University football team as a quarterback, a, I don't know, like a third-string quarterback. And I said, what do you want to do when you get done with school? Uh, you want to play professional football? He says, oh, no, I'm not good enough for that. I said, well, what do you want to do? He says, oh, well, maybe lay ministry. Well, to give you an idea of my background, I am from a secular Jewish home born in New York City, and I didn't know what lay ministry was. And uh, I said, what's lay ministry? I've never heard of that. He said, oh, like a missionary? It's missionary. We don't need missionaries today. This is 1977. <laughs> Why do we need missionaries today? We've got TV. TV can do everything. <clears throat> and uh, he told me he wanted to give me an illustration of the gospel. 
So I'm going to tell you some of the very things that he told me. He says, do you mind me giving you an illustration? I thought he was going to draw me a picture. I said, sure. And he had me read a verse from the Bible, and this was the first verse. And he had me read it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when I read this verse, I looked at him and I said, I'm not a sinner. And he was a bit taken back by that. Now, sin is not something that secular Jews in New York think about. This is never, ever a topic in our home. We never discussed sin. We never discussed God. We never discussed any of this. We went to, uh, you know, as far as sin is concerned, as far as I knew, you know, you go to synagogue once a year and, and the rabbi takes care of all of that. And we never really thought about it. At least I never did. And then lo and behold, I understood Christians. Every thought, uh-oh, <laughs> sinned. I mean, everything is... is is, is constructed around this. But it was a new concept to me, and I, and I, and I said, uh, I'm not a sinner. And he looked a bit bewildered, and he had me read another verse. But I, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery where they're in his heart. And I read this verse, and it was as if a knife had been stabbed right in my heart. Because when I was 14 years old, I started working in a, in a gas station on the highway going in and out of New York City. There was one on each side of the road by the same owner, and I worked both sides. I told the owner I was 16. I was 14 years old. He, he, they didn't check paperwork back at those, in, those ta- in those days, and uh, I guess many don't check paperwork anymore. But, um, but I learned that when I cleaned the parking lots on Friday nights, that I could find an amazing stash of pornographic magazines as the salesmen on their way home on Friday nights would throw them out. And I became addicted to pornography at a young age, at the age of 14, and by the time I was 18, I was well addicted. And I didn't think anybody knew that. And then this man named Jesus Christ said something 2,000 years ago that just zeroed right in on my heart. And for any of you who have ever been or, or are addicted to pornography, in my day, at that time, there was no internet. It's much easier now to get addicted to it. You understand how compelling that can be. And I couldn't get this off my mind. Then he had me read another verse. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't even know that there was a claim on the table that Christ died for me. You would think that someone growing up in the United States, born and raised in New York, would have heard this somewhere. And I'm sure that I heard it on some TV program. I remember when I was working in the gas station, people would come in and give me a little tract sometimes, and I'd sit on the night shift and read these sometimes. But nothing ever registered. But all of a sudden, after reading this verse and then this verse, somebody died for me. And then I read that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what an odd verse. That if I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord, well, that's pretty simple to do, but believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Who could believe in a physical resurrection? Who could believe in such a thing? How could any thinking man or woman ever believe in a physical resurrection? Were it not for the case that it's true, 
And God has set it in the hearts of men and women to believe that very truth. Could that be? Could it be? I was living at the time in that room. Room 1812 of the Lawrenson Dormitory on the Syracuse University campus. And then on November 7, 1977, so a couple months after I had heard this, that word still was penetrating into my heart. And I don't know to this day what motivated me to do this. This is something that had never been demonstrated to me in Christianity or in Judaism. I got down on my knees and I said, Father, forgive me because I'm a sinner. I'm just telling you what I did. It's a very simple story. At that moment, it was as if somebody was in my room. I was all alone. My roommate wasn't there. And I remember opening my eyes because I felt somebody was in my room. And I didn't see anyone. But somebody was there. And all of a sudden, there was this rush of cleansing over me. And this feeling of conviction that I had about that lust in my heart from pornography just went away. And I started weeping. What a strange experience for some Jewish kid from New York City to read a few verses. And I didn't want to get up because I loved the presence of whoever was in my room. Something happened to me and I didn't know what I was going to do, what I was going to say. And I remember a couple weeks later, this young man who had shared these few verses with me looked at me one day, a couple weeks after this event. I didn't tell anybody. What's this kid from New York going to say, this Jewish kid? What am I going to do? And he said to me, Jim, have you asked Jesus into your heart? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He said, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something is different. And I sure felt different. Something happened to me on that day. And I'll tell you the other thing that happened to me on that day, which is really remarkable. There was no longer any hold of pornography over me. All of my magazines went in the trash. And never, all of these years, has pornography been a trouble for for me again. Now, this is very unusual. I have seen many men come to faith. I did prison ministry in a maximum security prison for 10 years. Worked with many men with many struggles. It is very rare that somebody on the day of salvation gets delivered in this way. But what's interesting is that I was convicted of my sin through pornography. And on the day that I received Jesus, something changed in me. Now I'll tell you what happened in my career as a result. So some of the results results of that experience and decision to follow Jesus Christ. We'll look at my career, what happened. The results of the decision that I made to follow Jesus. What happened in my life as a result. I was striving to overcome sin. Something that I had never worried about before. I was striving to overcome sin. I had a lot of struggles on that day that took years to work through. Some that I still, still deal with now. But it affects me. That's something that never happened to me before. It started affecting me. And I wanted to do what was right. Just from that event. From that day, that event. That started to change in my life. I started reading the Bible every day. Every day, I started reading the Bible. So I read the Bible today. My pattern is this. I start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I read through to Revelation chapter 22. 
when I'm done, I start again. And I just pick up where I stopped reading the day before, and I've been doing this for over 30 years. And I'm not in any hurry. I don't do it once a year. Wherever I am, I, I just pick up and read, and when I feel God speaking to me, I just read it over and over again. I'm in no hurry. But I just start reading it over and over again, and I love it. Just love it. I started seeking like-minded friends. And I started seeking people that, that were like-minded. And I joined a church and I was really mentored by godly men, people that I really respected. You know, this whole idea of mentoring, we believe it in the, in the academic realm. You know, I'm mentoring 20 graduate students and 10 postdocs right now. We believe in this, in the academic world. But how about in the social world? and faith-based world, and emotional world. And so I started meeting men that I thought, boy, it'd be nice to be more like this person. They seem to have their act together. And I started praying that God would provide me with a wife that He had for me. I realized that was going to be a pretty important decision. And I started to pray for it. And then, this is a big thing that's going to apply to many of you. I actively started praying for God's blessing upon my studies. I was struggling in freshman chemistry. I really was. I was never very smart, never very good. And, and uh, you know, my, my sister was just one of these people who was off the charts in everything. I mean, 800 SATs, everything. One of those sisters. And then I had a brother. And all, and that was my older sister. My older bro- And she's now head of, of Microsoft Research. Um, and, after she served for many years as a professor at UCLA. Um, my brother was one of these guys that always did well and never had to work very hard. And now he's a lawyer. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I mean, if, if I were at a different institution, nobody would have laughed. But <clears throat> I was struggling with freshman chemistry because I was dropped into the honors courses because they felt I was a chemistry major, so I ought to be in there. I needed to be in with the masses, just the regular people. I started praying about my work. I ended up graduating, that, getting out of that semester with a B-plus in freshman chemistry. After that, I took so much chemistry that I took every graduate course in organic chemistry as an undergraduate and was at the top of every one of the classes. God really blessed my work. And go figure... God answers prayer. Isn't it amazing? This is something I started to experience. I'll show you, give you lots of examples from this. So, there was this admonition to change my words and my actions. This is the impact upon my career. I was moved to change my words and my actions because of studying of the Scriptures. I'll give you an example. It says in Proverbs 3, verse 3 and 4, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and men. This transcends faith. I don't care what your faith is. You do this. You don't let kindness and truth leave you. You bind it around your neck. Write it on the tablet of your heart. You're going to find favor in the eyes of many other people. If you speak honestly and you do the right thing, this will serve you very well in your career. As a result, I started to change the words that I use. Even to this day, when I'm going into a hard meeting, and I know I'm ready to, you know, because I am a type A person. I, you know, God checks me. Don't let kindness and truth leave you. Bind it around your neck. Write it on the tablet of your heart. You know, I know when I'm, I'm, I'm writing a sharp email because my 
fingers start pounding really hard. And I have to back off. Thank you so much for doing this. You are so valuable to this institution. Gets me a lot of points with people by doing this. The things that I do. Let me talk about software. When I started as an assistant professor, I got my first computer, first desktop computer. It was a great computer, state-of-the-art. It was a Mac SE with one megabyte of RAM. I mean, you had all of this memory. What are you going to do with one megabyte? It was great. And then the next year, they came out with the Mac SE 30. 30 megabytes. You could keep two programs open at the same time. And I, I gave that to the students in the lab, and I bought another set of software. And then I, the group started growing. I bought another. My colleagues said, what are you doing? Computers in those days didn't talk to each other. They said, just don't buy another set of software. Just put that set of software for that computer in that one. I said, oh, well, I called the companies, and they said, I can't do that. That I have to use it. And they shook their heads. They said, you're crazy. But I knew this verse. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. My colleagues, when they were struggling for grant money, I would have grant program managers call me at the end of the year and say, we got this chunk of extra money. Can you use it? There is great blessing in doing what is right. If I were you, but I'm not, but if I were, I wouldn't want any software on my devices that I didn't own or any music. And I tell my group every year, if there's any software that's drifted onto our computers that we don't own, get rid of it. And if we really need it, let me know, I will buy it. Because I have received so many blessings by being honest. And this is just one area that I think students this, these days can understand. Admonition to value my family. This is an important thing. You think this is a given. Ah, just get married and we'll live happily ever after. You know, if we really love each other, we'll be okay. Well, I work with a lot of students, and I've never known anybody to get married when they didn't love each other. I'm sure it happens sometimes, but generally doesn't happen. So love in itself doesn't make marriages last forever. The scriptures say, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. This is a very interesting verse. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. That I should treasure my family. Now, I came from a functional home. I didn't come from a dysfunctional home. I had a mother and a father. Now, my father was a nice guy. And I love my father. I still speak with my parents every week. Every Sunday, we speak together on the phone. My parents are both alive. And... and uh, um, but my father did what men do in, the, in that generation. What men did is they put food on the table. They worked hard, put food on the table, and then that's what was expected of a father, and that's what he did. And he did a good job of it. But God was calling me to more. And I learned this through the Scriptures. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. You know, I read verses like this, and I started investing in the life of my children. And we did things. We did things for this. So, for example, we had family prayer times. Daily family prayer times. So I would wake up my kids at 5.30 in the morning. Did I do it to this day. We have one kid left at home. He's 17. Still 5.30 in the morning. I wake him up. 
And my wife and I meet with him and we read the Bible together. And we pray together. And I'm out of the house by six. I leave my house at six in the morning. And on Saturdays I sleep in. I don't leave until about eight. And, and, uh, but I, so I leave normally six in the morning and I come home at six in the evening. But at six in the evening we'd have dinner together. And then I'd put the kids to bed, starting with the youngest to the oldest. Because, where did I learn this? The Scriptures. Because of the decision that I made, this changed my career. And this has added enormous balance in my career. Hard work, but I implored God to help me to raise my children because parenting is the hardest task. For anybody who is a parent here, you will understand this. I was just speaking with two other professors today and we were talking about our children. Just today. First thing, how are you kids? They're talking about, oh, my daughter's this, my son's this. And, and immediately I say, isn't it amazing how much CPU time we devote to wanting our children to do well in life, to wanting their good? You know, you'd think nanocars would consume me and graphene. You know what consumes me? is the good of my children. This is a precious thing. And you will be all the better of a scientist, of an engineer, if you learn to value your family and treasure them. Because they will make you much better. On the days when I had great discouragements, my family was there to encourage me. My family was there to stand by me. And many of my colleagues asked me how. This is Rick Smalley, won the 1996 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the discovery of C60, Buckminster Fullerene. He was a good friend of mine. He used to ask me, how do you do it? How do you do it? Because this, this thing in life of having a family and having children that love you as adult children and having a wife or having a husband that you stay married to the rest of your life is a treasure that people will value around you. doesn't matter how great a scientist they are. They go, wow, how do you do that? The admonition to fear God and keep His commandments. The conclusion, when all has been heard, this is, Solomon wrote this, is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to everyone. If you do what is right, you will go far in your career. If you work honestly and uprightly, you will go far in your career. This is what the Scriptures taught me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus said. I mean, how simple is that? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. God will love me if I keep His commandments. This is what I was learning. Just reading the Scriptures. I'll give you some applications of the Scriptures. This is an event that happened. September 3rd, 1993. I'd just gotten tenure. And I was invited back. I got my PhD at Purdue University. And I'd been invited back to give a talk at Purdue. So, so uh, I got tenure very quickly, and, and uh, uh, God really blessed my work. And I was praying that morning, and I pray before I give a seminar. Can you believe that? I pray before I give a chemistry seminar. Is that allowed? And, and I prayed that God would really bless it. Really bless it. It's just going to be talking about chemistry. It's actually going to be speaking about well-defined ligamers. You, you know, you make them 50, 50 angstroms, 100 angstroms, well-defined, precisely defined ligamers. And as I was praying, I read this verse, this verse that particular morning, and I was staying in the Purdue Memorial Union and Hotel. 
Truly I say to you that if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. So I said, Lord, you're really raising my faith. I praise the best seminar ever in that department. Ever. And I said, well, how will I know it's the best? Martin's 100 years old. How am I going to know? He said, Lord, if it's the best, I pray that my professor, my mentor, my mentor would say that it was a super seminar. Because every time I brought him a result as a graduate student, no matter how good it was, and some of them were really good, he'd come up to me and say, pretty good. For your level. I never got past this man's waist. And so I, I prayed that he would say it was super. Something totally out of character for him. So, when I got done with this seminar, H. Nagishi, my mentor, who 30 years later received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for Palladium-Catalyzed Cross-Coupling Reaction, he was sitting right on the front row. And as soon as I got done, he stood up, he raised his hand, he said, Supa! Supa! <laughs> Sitting right behind him was H.C. Brown, who won the Nobel Prize in 1979 for the hydroboration reaction. And he was in his 80s at the time, and I stepped off the stage, and I, I stepped off the podium, and I, and, and I went down, and I shook his hand. He was sitting right behind Nagishi, right on the end where he always normally sat. Nobody else sat in that seat. And I said, thank you for coming to the seminar today. He says, I want to tell you something. That was the best seminar I have ever heard in my entire life. And I said, that's very kind of you to say that. And he, in typical Nobel Prize winning fashion, said, I'm not saying it to be kind, I really mean it. <laughs> Here's another application. One time I was upset with a colleague. You ever get upset with a colleague? This colleague was saying things about me to, to other students and, and to undergrads and things, and I knew why he was saying because my career just blossomed. And his career was just was not blossoming. And so I, I went across the hall, knocked on his door, and I was really going to give it to him. And when I knocked, no answer. He wasn't in. And then I had been memorizing this verse with my kids. But I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. That's a tough one. That is really a tough one. But as soon as that came to my mind and my heart, I said, okay, fine, Lord, I'll do it. And I would go to the chapel... This is when I, I taught for 11 years at the University of South Carolina, Henry, the, the uh, Rutledge Chapel. And I, I w from the time I was an undergraduate, I was always break at noontime. Somewhere around the middle of the day, I'd go to the chapel and pray. And I still do that. Is that okay? I still do that. It's allowed, right? I haven't violated any laws, I don't think. So I would go and I would pray. And I said, I will pray for his work every day that God would bless his work. Because I am told that I had to bless those and pray for him. And I went and I prayed for him every day. And after about two years, his program got so big and so good and so successful, he got an offer from another university. He accepted the offer and he left. And I was so happy. <laughs> this really works in helping your career. So let me, let me close out with giving you a few things that I think about. Pondering God and science. Seeking to understand on the left side there is, is, is a cartoon of, a, of, of what we called a molecular computer. And we called it a molecular computer because when I, we had proposed it to DARPA, we called it a, 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 a synthetic brain. And they thought they were going to get in trouble with, with a topic like that. And so 
So and it turned out a decade later they had the synthetic brain project. But we, were, we took a disordered array of molecules, just throw it in there, and then we get both those pulses from the side and try to program it to do something useful. And my colleagues in engineering and computer science said we could never solve this thing because what you get set up is a series of, uh, of nonlinear differential equations, a whole series of them to try to solve this. And my colleagues said it couldn't be solved. And so what I did is I hired two graduate students from computer and applied mathematics, and I never told them that it couldn't be solved. And they solved it. And now I have a position in the computer science department at Rice. So I thought a lot about brains and how they work and how they structure, and we worked very hard to get simple gates, AND gates, OR gates, and we, we got NAND there. And, you know, with, with NAND, we, you can do everything. Now you have negation, you can do it all. But very simple systems. And then I'd watch a mosquito come flying around me. And they say, you know, in the brain of that mosquito, tiny little brain, it's far more sophisticated my, than my little hack synthetic brain that I can maybe get an AND gate or an OR gate. And this mosquito, and I would just watch it. And it would sense I'm there. And it would come, sting, and then release other chemicals to call its friends that there's a hunk of meat here. Come. <laughs> Very sophisticated. And then in flight, you go try to hit a mosquito. You've got to be pretty fast. I mean, in flight. And how able they are. And I've just read recently how mosquitoes survive in a rainstorm. You'd think they'd all die. They don't. They actually ride the raindrop. They, they ride the raindrop and then flip off it before it lands. It's really amazing. All of that in this little brain. So people think, does science draw me away from God? And it's just the opposite. When I study biological systems, it's like, wow. This to me is so amazing. How this happens. It is understandable as we understand more. But it draws me closer to God. When I have a, a two-year-old child come running to me, I'm amazed at how they can walk, how they can think, how they can reason. I try to teach them to speak. The child says, I put it over there. And I want to correct them. No, you put it over there, not put it. But put it, it's very correct. It's just that in English, with short words, we don't put ED at the end. I will put, I did put, I, it's all the same. But the child is thinking very logically. I put it over there. That's what he should say. I mean, the brain is so amazing. So I see this amazing order. And it causes me to love God all the more. That's what it causes me to do. Again, let me say, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a philosopher, I'm a chemist. I have faith, I love God. It's a simple thing, but I'll answer any questions that you might have, I'll try to.